Welcome to Twice Born Podcasts. My name is Mike Bailey. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to get your feedback. And if you have any questions, please go to twiceborn.net. You can also find us on social media. I hope that you find this podcast helpful and informative. God bless. Why was this written? Who was it written to? What is the importance of it? How can I apply it to my own life personally? And, I, and I'm the kind of person maybe you can relate. You want to know why. Why are things the way they are? Do you look at the world and say, why? Why is it this way? Why are we this way? Why do we do the things that we do? Uh, how has history led to this place? How are the things that have come before us led us to who we are today? And I look at my own life. I look at the history in my own life, my grandparents, what they went through, how extreme things happened to get me here on this planet, uh, things that could have been very different very easily and, and could have changed everything and, and me not even being here. And so, so much of life is built on things that have happened in the past. And today we're going to look at how selfishness and selflessness have impacted the world. And uh, one of the things I really wanted to do a deep dive on is Rome because Paul has such a love for Rome uh, anyone here ever visited Rome? So as far as I've been told, Rome is one of the most amazing places to visit. It's got a lot of history. It's beautiful. It's got a lot of culture. Uh, but the Rome today is not the Rome that existed in Paul's day. And Rome had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And a lot of people have spent their whole lives studying the culture of Rome, studying what brought the rise of Rome and what brought the decline of Rome. And this morning, before we get into the Word, I just wanted to share with you some things that I came across I thought were very helpful to give me a bigger picture, to help me to understand uh, who we are, who the Romans were, and really how human nature works, how sin works, how glory and holiness works. And so as we look, uh, there's a book called Are We Rome by Cullen Murphy. Are we Rome? And he goes into this. This isn't a Christian book. Uh, this is just a book about the history of Rome. But it ties the two nations where the United States, we've built a lot of our structure, a lot of our, uh, our cultural uh, understanding, our cultural activity is built from Roman culture. And a lot of our systems, our government, how our local systems work, these are all built on Roman principles. And so as you go through, there's some key things that are very close in similarity. Now, there are extreme differences, but these are some of the things that we can look at Rome and say, well, Paul was there. Paul wanted to go there. There was a church there. Um, these are people that are living out maybe similar lives to us today. And a couple of the earmarks of the key things that, that connect us are, first, uh, Rome was the dominant power of its day. Right, Just like England was not too long ago, the idea was that the sun doesn't set on Rome, that Rome has power throughout all of the known world. They were the dominant power. People understood that to be Roman was significant. Even Paul, when he told those that were persecuting him that he was Roman, they changed their view pretty quickly. That, oh, he's Roman, that means something, right? Uh, interestingly enough, they were approximately equal to us in size. The size of the area was similar to the United States. Uh, they were a global influencer. They influenced things that were happening, their money, their systems, how they organized. Um, they would go in, and then that system would be a reflection of them. And so they were uh, making a difference in the world. They were uh, an open society. They were pluralistic, meaning it didn't matter what beliefs you had, you could come in. As long as you paid taxes and recognized the emperor as God, then you were welcomed into that system of Rome. 
And so they were a pluralistic society. They allowed the Jews, the Christians, or any belief system to come in and be part of their nation. And that was similar to us. We're called the melting pot, right? We have all kinds of perspective, all kinds of worldviews, all kinds of understandings exist within our nation. And then culturally, there's some. You know what I learned as I was reading? This is really interesting to me. Maybe it's not you, but it was very interesting to me. They love to sue each other. They were like all about law. Like their thing was they prided themselves on two things. There's the two things that, and you know, I'm taking this author at his word. Uh, but the two things that they said was they, they would sue everybody. So the, the, the law part of their culture was a big money-making part of their culture. It was a significant part of their culture. The other part of their culture that was defining for them is they love to smear their leaders. <laughs> they love to belittle their leaders. They were always trying to find the dirt on their leaders. And so they were known for undermining it. Like anyone who got to a position of authority or power, they would try to find some dirt on them. And then that was what they prided themselves on, is that anyone who became a leader became kind of the, 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 the punching bag for the culture, right? And so we see today, a lot of people don't run for office, right, in our nation, because you become a punching bag. There's not a lot of grace. There's not a lot of forgiveness when you take a position of authority in our culture. And that was very similar to the Roman culture. And so we see these similarities, but you know, there's... There's some truths then that, that we need to recognize because of these similarities. We may be on a very similar path. Rome only existed for less than 500 years in its, in its real significance and its influence. You know, and we're, we're getting older as a nation, right? There's another book called uh, Our Dance Has Turned to Death by Carl Wilson. And this takes a much more spiritual approach to Rome. And uh, Carl, in his book, talks about these seven stages of Rome, these seven things that occurred within Rome that brought them to their demise. The first stage was men ceased to lead their families in worship. As he studied the historicity and the historical accounts of Rome, uh, he began to see, and I think it's interesting, if you study Rome, they started as a nation with uh, high moral character as one of the greatest values. The men... Uh, the leaders were, were taking positions of, I will sacrifice myself, I will sacrifice anything to protect. And they were the leaders of spiritual uh, discussions with their family. Uh, they took their responsibility seriously. And as time went on, the men of the culture began to lessen their uh, desire to want to be leaders. Second stage, men selfishly neglected the care of their wives and children to pursue material wealth political and military power, and cultural development. And so they became workaholics. Their jobs became the most important thing to them. This was as they studied the culture of Rome, these were the, the identifying factors that began to occur. Uh, the third stage, men were engaged in uh, their, their sexual values changed. Their view of sexuality changed. The fourth stage, uh, the role of women changed within the culture. Their value decreased. Uh, women were neglected and their roles devalued. That all of a sudden the mother wasn't important. The, the woman became uh, basically almost valueless in their culture. One of the main things I think that's very different between us and Rome is Rome had no value for minority or women or anyone that was not, they were not even allowed to be in power, Right? And this was causing a great rift and a great challenge uh, within the family unit because the fifth stage 
is the husband and wives competed against each other for money, home leadership, and the affection of their children. And so as the family began to disintegrate, so did the relationship of marriage began to disintegrate. And now instead of a union, it was a competition. It was who would be the superior, who would be the top of the relationship. The sixth stage, selfish individualism grew, uh, carried out over into society. It fragmented into smaller and smaller groups of loyalties. The nation thus was weakened by eternal conflicts. So it divided. It became a divider. It, they had identities that were built into things other than the oneness of Rome. And so they disintegrated into small pockets of groups that hated each other. And this group hated that group, and this group hated that group, and this group hated that group. And finally, unbelief in God became more complete. Parental authority diminished. The ethical and moral principles disappeared, affecting the economy and the government. Because of eternal weakness and fragmentation, the society came apart. Rome collapsed because it could no longer live in the structure that it had. It was built one way, and then it was the opposite by its end. It killed itself from within. It destroyed itself from the inside out. And so there's these parallels. These are as if you were to study the human life, that as a child this happens, as a teenager this happens, as a young adult this happens, and as a senior adult this happens. Cultures have the same sort of life experiences. And we're beginning to see that we're trending very closely to the Roman culture. We're disintegrating from within. We're destroying ourselves. And finally, there was a great author named Paul. He wrote a, a letter to the Romans, and we've been studying it. The first stage is when people turn from God to idolatry, right? He says in Romans chapter 1, they exchanged the worship of the one true God for the creation. The second stage is men and women exchange their natural relationships and identities. The third stage is anarchy. Once a society has rejected God's revelation, it's on its own. Moral and its societal anarchy is the natural result. If you don't build your, your nation, if you don't even build your own life on anything that's stable, anything that's, that has some sort of foundation other than your opinion, it leads to anarchy. It leads to destruction. The fourth stage is judgment. God's judgment uh, rightly falls upon those who practice idolatry, idolatry and immorality. Throughout the history of the nation of Israel, there was idolatry, sexual perversion, anarchy, which each person knew what was right in his own eyes, and then finally judgment. This has been the life cycle of nations. It was the life cycle of Israel. And I would say personally, it is the challenge of all of our own lives that we don't fall into this cycle where we fall into the traps of temptation, we fall into the traps of selfishness that lead us to a path of destruction. And so that's some bad news, right? You're like, hey, I didn't come here for all this bad news. So there is good news in the midst of this. And I think today as we look at God's word, it's going to be very clear how we can be part of the solution instead of part of the problem, right? How many of you want to be part of the solution? I, will, I, don't, I want to stop being perpetuating the problem. I want to be part of the solution, and so as we look to God's word, the question I have this morning is, what does God want us to know about selflessness? What does God want us to know about selflessness? Because at the undercurrent of all these things I've talked about, the true reason for this decay in any nation 
is that each person becomes selfish instead of selfless. And so that's what I believe we're going to read here in, in Romans chapter 15. My prayer is that we would absorb it, hear it, understand it, and be able to live it. And so let's precede God's word with prayer and ask him to speak to us. Father God, you are an awesome God. You are worthy of these moments and these days. Lord, we know that you have created us. You knew us before we were born. You knit us together in our mother's wombs. Uh, you had a purpose for our existence and a plan for our future. And so, Lord, as we come to your word now, Romans chapter 15, Lord, as you, through your Holy Spirit, uh, gave Paul the words to write that are timeless and eternal, that can impact us and transform us, we pray right now, Lord, that that would happen, that our lives would be changed, that our hearts would be renewed, that our spirits would be full of, of the joy that only you can give us. And so, Lord, we come to this time, we see the problem, Lord, and we ask you to protect us from evil, but, Lord, that you would lead us into righteousness that you would uh, divinely reveal to us a path of hope, a path of peace, a path of grace, a path with the future. And so, Lord, we give this time to you. We ask you to, to, to lift our minds and our hearts to you as we study your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, we're in Romans chapter 15. Uh, we're going to start in verse 22 because I think it's important to recognize Paul had such a desire to go to Rome. I mean, this whole letter was written to Rome. He loved the Roman people. He loved the Roman church. And here's what he writes in his letter. Now, I want to remind you, there were no uh, numeric designations. Uh, chapter 15, he didn't write it, chapter 15 of my letter. This is just part of the outflow of a letter that he wrote them. And it was personal, and it was passionate, it was important to him. And here's what he wrote. That is why I have been prevented many times from coming to you. But now... I no longer have any work to do in these regions, and I have strongly desired for many years to come to you. Whenever I travel to Spain, for I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you for the journey there, once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. And so Paul has this this urge, he has this desire for Rome. If you know the story of Paul, he was not, his, his birth name was Saul. He was given uh, the, the Hebrew name Saul, and he, he really owned that name uh, because he wanted to be a man respected. He wanted to be a general. He wanted to be feared. And so for the first part of his life, he lived as Saul, and he, he was taught by Gamaliel, who was the high-level teacher of the, of the Jewish people, and he worked his way up to prominence, and he got to a place where this new uh, group of usurpers called Christians had risen up, and he was part of the group to shut them down, to get rid of the Christians. And so he was on a mission, getting letters from officials that he may imprison or put to death those who claim to be Christians. And so for much of Saul's life, he attacked the church. Uh, many of the early Christians were either put in prison or lost their life because of Saul. But Saul had a miraculous experience. He was on the road to Damascus, and God showed up. Jesus showed up and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't know who it was. But through a three-day journey, he began to realize it was Jesus, and his scales that were on his eyes fell from his eyes. And once he was born again, he was twice born, he no longer went by the name of Saul. He changed his name to Paul. Paul meaning humility, selfless. Serving others above himself, willing to, to lower himself so that others would come to Christ. 
And so here, his whole life, uh, the beginning of his life was built into his Jewish tradition of being a, a Jew of Jews and his Roman tradition that he was a, uh, a citizen of Rome that gave him rights, that put him on a higher pedestal, that put him in a position of authority. Just by being a Roman citizen, he was higher than most other people in his community. And so these two things, had his whole front end of his life was so built on pride and selflessness and, and really making my life do something great achievement. And now everything is switched upside down. And now he has to be a humble servant. Can you imagine, can you imagine if you were the cause of people's loved ones going to jail or being put to death, and then you're walking into their house, you're walking into their house and, and they know, I mean, can, this would be so difficult, would it not? They know the reason that their relatives are in jail, the reason that their loved ones may have lost their life is because of you. How difficult would it be to walk into their house, to walk in uh, to that group of people and, and say, now I'm one of you and I'm here to lead you, right? That would be extraordinarily difficult. That'd be extraordinarily tasking. How then uh, he had to be at a level and a commitment to say, even though I know what they know about me, I'm still going to go and do it. I'm still going to love them. I'm still going to pursue the relationship. I'm still going to attempt to lead. And only by the grace of Barnabas was he received in. But he had to humble himself. Paul had an, an immense love for Rome. But I think what's important to recognize, and, I, and the reason I believe the Holy Spirit didn't let him go there, is because Rome was in heaven. Rome was in heaven. What is the great challenge of our day? What is the great challenge of our lives? I believe that we, we want to idealize and think that somehow in this life we can get heaven, right? Somehow, there's some, if only these things align properly, if only these things work out, then heaven will exist on earth. And how many people commit their whole life, every day getting up, going to work, living out their life, trying to achieve heaven in this life? And their pursuit is a daily uh, journey to a thing that does not exist in this life. Their heaven, first, is the Holy Spirit of God living within you. The kingdom of heaven is amongst us, Jesus said. So knowing Christ is a heavenly experience. But the ultimate heaven is not a place you can get to till you're past this life. The hurdle of this life leads you to the heavenly place. And so I believe Paul had to recognize, or God had to demonstrate to Paul that Rome was in heaven. As amazing as Rome was, as, as beautiful and as, as majestic and, and wonderful and awe-inspiring as Rome was, it was not heaven. And yet even Paul, at the end of his life, God held him out until the very end to give him the opportunity to go there. And when he has the opportunity to communicate with the church in Rome, here's what he says. If you have your Bibles, we're going to go back to verse 1 of chapter 15. Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weakness of those without strength and, do, and not to please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. Even Christ did not please himself. We are obligated to be selfless like Christ. We have an obligation to be selfless. If we go to the next slide, I think of Jesus, this picture where he's healing the, the lame person. He's healing the lame person. Here's this woman on the back of his, his cloak. 
You know, and we know the story of the woman who had the issue with bleeding, that she just had a desire to get close to him. And Jesus had such a love and compassion for whoever was seeking him. And we're, we're told that he would heal. He would go to the places that no one else was going, the leper colonies where no one was going to go because leprosy did not have a cure. Leprosy, if you get it, it's, that's the end. And yet Christ desired to bring hope and love and grace into those places. Christ is the greatest example. If I'm a Bible-believing Christian, if I'm Jesus is my Lord and Savior, then I'm called to be like Jesus. And Jesus was the most selfless of all. He poured himself out unto others, right? The greatest attribute of Christ was his forgiveness and grace, his willingness to serve, his willingness to, to empty himself of his own wants and desires, empty himself of his own whatever that thing that he wanted, even to the point of at the moment he knew he had to go to the cross, he said, Father, if there's any other way than this, please let it be. And yet your will be done. Because I am selfless and I want those who follow me to be selfless. And the answer to the problems of today is forgiveness and grace through the gospel. Selfless believers sharing the good news of Christ. A selflessness that the world so desperately needs to see because all the world sees is selfishness. Buy this, get this, have this, do this. They need to see a different picture of reality. They need to see a different picture of what is true. They need to see a different picture of what can guide them and influence them as a person. They need to see the, the church, the believers that, that are attending church and are part of the church and are members of the church being selfless in their lives. Continue to verse 20. He says this, My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, so that I may not build on someone else's foundation, but as it was written, those who were not told of him will see, and those have not heard will understand. He had such a desire to share this good news. He had such a desire to go into the places that had not been reached. At the end of June, there's a group of us going down the Amazon River to reach people in the name of Christ because we want to be like Christ. And this church, by supporting that and, and giving to that and praying for that, is allowing for us as a body to be that committed to going and sharing the good news of Christ, however, whenever, wherever we can. It's selflessness. We have people that are going, that are giving up things in their life to go on this trip. People are giving up uh, things that, that may have made uh, something beneficial for them, but they're willing to sacrifice this is what we should be known for. This is what the world needs to hear. This will influence in the area of the gospel. Because if we become believers in Christ and we're super selfish, we undermine the very gospel itself. It saddens me that so many people go to church and they think, oh, the church is all about money and, and control and all these things. And I'm like, the church is the bride of Christ. The church is not a building. It's not even an organization. It is a body of members who love Christ, that have put their hope and faith in Jesus, that he's going to return. And where he is, he will take us with him. And that place, there is no more crying. There is no more sorrow. There is no more pain. This is the church. Our father owns a cattle on a thousand hills. A gold, diamond, platinum credit card means nothing to him. It is nothing. Let's meet on a hill outside and praise the Lord if we have to. 
But let us not be known for selfishness, but selflessness. Let my commitment be of emptying myself, not filling myself with stuff. I believe that the gospel changes everything. We look at our country, we look at the news, we look at whatever outlet you go to, and you get depressed, and you feel sad, and you feel upset, and there's only one answer. The answer is, let the gospel be known. Let people know that God loves them. He created them. They were not a mistake. That he desires to be in a personal relationship with them. And the only way that relationship can exist is if sin is dealt with through the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. And when that is received and that is uh, entered into their life, it changes not only them, it changes their family. Because as a father, when Jesus is my Lord, as a father, that's how I now have to treat my wife as a, as a godly man. How do I treat my children as a godly father? As a godly person, I have to reflect the things of Christ. If I claim to be his, then you need to see him in me. All of us then become reflections of Christ. All of us, how I talk to people, how I spend my money, my time, my energy, my effort, all of it aligns with my identity in Christ. Has nothing to do with my own aspirations. Has nothing to do with what I'm trying to achieve and everything to do with what Christ has for me. This is what needs to be declared. This is what needs to be taught and practiced, practiced so people understand that this is a life-changing uh, gospel. This gospel makes everything different. And if what would the world be like? What would the United States be like if everyone loved Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Would you need locks on your doors anymore? Would you need anti-theft? Would you need uh, you know, the security that no one's stealing your, your identity? Right? It is such a clear answer. But it's such a broken world, it's hard to see. It's such a broken world, it's hard to really believe. But the gospel changes everything. Verses 5 and 6 say this, Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that you may glorify God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, with one mind and one voice. We need to be a selfless, single-minded missionary church. We need to be selfless, single-minded in our desire to share the gospel, to tell the world. <coughs> Excuse me. Satan doesn't want this one. <laughs> He's got me again. <clears throat> When I was young, I loved stories. How many of you love stories? I love stories. I love campfire stories. I love the person who can tell good stories. I had a friend that was in a story. He would go to a story con convention, and they would have all these people from all over the world come tell stories. Because stories mean something, right? When Jesus taught, he taught using actual things, and he told stories, parables. And there was a story I was told when I was in college that it fires me up. It, it, it motivates me when I hear it. It's something that I love because it gives me a bigger picture to life. It gives me something to, to focus on and say, why not me? Why not me? It's a story about a monk who lived in 400 AD. His name was Telemachus. The story goes like this, and this is a historical account. Obviously, we don't know everything in the situation, 
But there is some historicity to this. This is something that actually did happen. Telemachus was a monk, and he was known for his gardening. He loved his garden, and he would till his garden, and he would take care of his garden. He loved and cherished his garden. And one of the things he liked to do when he was gardening is pray and talk to God. And so he would do the gardening, and he would talk to God, and he would have this relationship with God as he would water the plants, pull the weeds. Then one day he was doing this, and in his prayer time, he sensed the Holy Spirit say to him, Telemachus, I want you to go to Rome. Telemachus, I want you to go to Rome. And so Telemachus said, all right, God, if you want me to go to Rome, I'm going to go to Rome. So he packed up his, his belongings and made the trip to Rome. And as he entered Rome, he looked around and he saw all the merchants and he saw all of these wonderful things happening, all these people from all these places coming together to sell and to buy goods and the smells and the atmosphere and the energy. He had never experienced it and he looked at the buildings, the architecture, the immensity of it, the number of people, the number of places, the number of things, all of these wonderful things he had never experienced his whole life. He was like on sensory overload. How could there be a place? How could humans create a place like this? This is beyond my expectations. He entered Rome and he noticed that many people were going to this giant Colosseum. Many of the people were making their way to the Colosseum and he said something great must be happening at the Colosseum for all these people to be going there. And so he followed the people to the Colosseum and he entered into the Colosseum and made his way to the very top seat in the Colosseum. I, I, I know this experience. <laughs> and he looked down and he saw this, this field at the base of the Colosseum. And some horns began to pronounce the entry of these warriors. And the warriors began to walk out onto this field. And still Telemachus looked and he said, this must be an amazing thing for all of these people to have gathered here. This must be some wondrous experience. This must be something uh, wonderful and amazing. And then the horns declared again, the battle must begin. And he looked down and with horror, he began to see men fighting each other to the death. And at that very moment, Telemachus' heart was broken when he recognized what the people had come to cheer, what they had come to celebrate, what this was all about. And so at the very loudest his lungs could give him speech, he would say, in the name of God, stop this. In the name of God, what are you doing? Stop. In the name of God, stop. Of course, there was cheering and no one heard him. And so he made his way down, closer and closer to the field, closer to the battle, continually stopping and, and yelling, please stop this horrible thing. In the name of God, please stop this. Please stop. Why? Why are you doing this? Stop. And finally, he made it to the, to the entrance, to the, the gate that allows you onto the field. And he was yelling this, and no one was paying him any attention. And so he climbed over the fence, went onto the field, and began to yell, Stop in the name of God, stop. Stop doing this. Why are you doing this? 
Nobody paid him any attention, as if he didn't exist. He went up to one of the large, strong gladiators, and he grabbed him on the shoulder. He said, stop. Why are you doing this? Stop this. Why? Stop. In the name of God, stop. The gladiator turned and dismissed him and continued to fight. Telemachus went back and said, stop. Please, stop. The gladiator turned and threw Telemachus to the ground. As Telemachus went to get back up, the gladiator turned his sword and plunged it into Telemachus. And he fell dead on the floor of the Battle of the Gladiators. Now there was someone that was on the very edge, and they could hear what Telemachus was saying. And I said, what was he saying? What was he saying? What was he saying? I heard, stop in the name of God, stop. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And this began to pass to the people there in the Colosseum, in the Colosseum, this, this report of what this person was saying, this monk who had come to the Colosseum. History recognizes, you can Google it when you get home if you want. History recognizes that this event caused such an uproar in Rome the Caesar was actually arrested, and gladiatory fights from that time on became illegal. The influence of this monk to give his life because what he saw was so wrong, was so destructive, was so inhuman that he selflessly went onto the field of battle and put himself in a dangerous place. And today, he is remembered more than any gladiator. Most don't even know who Caesars were. And yet he impacted the world. He impacted the world. He impacted Rome because of his selflessness, because his willingness to listen to God and to say, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. So I hear that story, and I think about Telemachus, and I think about my own life, and I think, what is my life all about? What impact will we have as a church? What impact will I have as a person? Do I want to just live? Do I just want to survive? Do I just want to make it till death? Is that the only reason we're here? How do we impact our culture so that we don't become the next Rome? How do we impact a world that is broken and lost and hurting and in need of so much healing and so much uh, peace? They need selfless believers that will do whatever the Lord asks them to do to the point of sacrificing all they have so that even one can be saved. Even one can find the gospel. truly believe that we all need to selflessly seek the kingdom of God. Tomorrow when you wake up, for the rest of your life, you have an opportunity to seek the kingdom of God. You know, when, when we are told what we should seek in life, we're told seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness. What will you gain if you seek your own kingdom? What will you gain if you don't seek the kingdom of God? 
you will gain nothing. There is only one place I know that offers more than any of us can imagine in hope and grace and peace and wonder, and that's the kingdom of God. It was established on the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. So how do we apply this? How do we live this out? How do we take these principles with us? First, I believe it's essential that I and we pray for repentance and we call for repentance. The thing that is keeping us on the same path of destruction is no one has said, stop, this is the wrong way. No one has got up and said, we are going the wrong way. We need to stop and turn around and go the right way. I need to stop anything that does not please the Lord, anything that is not focused on the kingdom of God and he has not called me to, and it is my own kingdom I'm seeking, that I need to stop it and turn and go the other way. Repentance begins, confession begins with me and you. It begins with people who take this seriously. It begins when we say this is the real world. The real world is that there's a holy God and he loves us and desires for us to be with him. But if we reject and walk away, we live as enemies. And so we must confess and believe and repent and follow and turn to him. And secondly, I would say find a place to serve. If you have knowledge but you don't have action, it can be very much like being in a spiritual coma. You need to serve. You were created to serve. God put you on the planet to serve. You'll never feel more alive. You'll never feel more uh, in tune with your purpose than when you serve God. Serving God is one of the greatest choices you can make in your life. It's one of the greatest choices that can change your life. If you're struggling with with problems in your life, if you're struggling with issues in your life, one of the cures that God gives us is by serving others, we find freedom. By serving others, we find hope. By serving others, we find that thing that we're looking for, that peace that passes understanding. And then finally, teach with words and actions. Teach with words. People need to hear the truth, but they also need to see the truth. I need to not just be a teacher of this. I need to be a doer of this. Words without action are pointless. They're actually destructive. If we talk about doing, being selfless and loving people and committing ourselves and making a difference and standing up and being bold and we don't do it, then we're doubly cursed because we knew to do it and we didn't. And so this morning, this is the challenge I ask of myself. This is the challenge I ask of us. If you are hearing these words, there's a reason God's telling us this. It's not Mike Bailey. It's not anyone in this room. It's the Holy Spirit of God wanting all of us to be fully committed. Fully committed to him. What's keeping you from that today? Is it anything keeping you? Are you following the path that he's laid down for you? Paul initially wanted to go to Rome, and at the end of his life, he enters Rome, and as far as we know, the end of his life happens around this time. And he finished starting out as someone full of pride, selfishness, and he ended his life with grace and selflessness. God could not use the first half of his life because the only focus was himself. God used the second half of his life more than any other person, maybe, outside of Christ. And what is the key difference between the first half of his life and the second half of his life? Selfless humility. Selfless humility. That's what we're called to today.
I don't know what that means for you, but I know the Holy Spirit knows how to communicate that to you. And he loves you, and he brought us together, and he gave us this word, and he desires for us to follow it. And so as we come to this time where we want to interact with God personally, let's be mindful of the fact that God used Telemachus, he can use you. God is, is desiring for selfless, humble servants that he can use even to change the trajectory of a nation, even to change the messiness that exists today. But it comes down to what is he saying to you right now? If you would, for a moment, close your eyes and bow your heads. I don't know what God is saying to you, but I know that he can talk to us in ways no one